I want to say good morning, but based on what's behind me, I think huzzah is what I'm supposed to say, right? Huzzah, yes. Good morning, Graham Emanuel. Good to see you. And I just want to say that uh, VBS, we need to really be praying for VBS this week. My mother was born into a not-Christian home. My grandfather was not a believer, but he felt like my, my mom, his little girl, ought to go to church, that she should go to this VBS children's program that's happening. And so he sent her to the local church near where they lived. And back in those days, they didn't call you once they got your address. They actually came up and knocked on your door, and my grandfather was led to the Lord by people from the church at the VBS where he sent his daughter, my mom. That's where, uh, that's how my family really became a Christian. I would not be here today, really, had it not been for that church uh, in that VBS long before I was even born. So as fun as all of this is, and it should be fun, and I'm glad that it's fun, VBS is a vehicle for us to present the gospel to students. And so we need to be praying for those souls of children whom we may not know yet, but that God knows. And as much as we want VBS to go smoothly, and there's been a lot of work to make sure that it will, we want it to go smoothly so we can properly focus on what we should be focusing on, uh, which is presenting the gospel to these children. How many testimonies have you heard when people, where people have said that they were led to the Lord through VBS? So let's pray, uh, not only for VBS, but specifically for those children, 150 children, who are going to be here, Lord willing, tomorrow. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we lift up the names of those boys and girls who are on our registration list and even those names that are not on our registration list. We may not know all the children, but you know each of them, Lord. You know them by name. You knit them in their mother's womb. And just as much as you had a hand in their first birth, Lord, we believe that you also have a plan for their second birth through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that we hope to present them with this week. So we pray that you will soften their hearts, that you will give them clarity in their mind and focus from all distractions so that they can hear of how you love them, how you sent your son Jesus to die for them, and how he rose again, that they can trust in him as their substitute for the, for the forgiveness of their sins. May that take place multiple times this week, Lord. May you be with our workers. May you be with the program. And we pray all this for your glory. And in the name of your son, Jesus, all God's people said, amen. Hey, sorry, but before we move on, uh, I'm getting some buzzing here. I don't know. Is there anything I can do? Is there something that I can turn off that would pre prevent this buzzing? If no one else can hear it, I won't uh, get in the way of it. But can you guys hear that? No, if you can't hear it, then I'm not going to worry about it. But we'll just dive right in which is by me telling you guys a story. Like I said, I was raised in a Christian home. I was the oldest, uh, still am the oldest of four kids. My parents had me and my little brother, and then they had a half time for about eight years before having two more children. So for me as a young boy, my memories as a child was me and my younger brother. And I remember one morning we were at church and I had heard from the Sunday school teacher the lesson from Jesus giving his Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, he talked about how good Christians who are part of the kingdom of heaven, that they should go the extra mile when people ask them to carry a burden for them. 
or that if someone asks them for an article of clothing, they should even give the coat off their back in order to be a good Christian and to uh, belong into the kingdom of heaven. And I remember hearing that Sunday school lesson as a little boy, and um, I, I wanted to be a good Christian. I was already a believer at that point, but I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to please God. So me being the older brother, I had to be the responsible one and the mature one, and the younger brother, he gets to be the grubby one, right, and the selfish one, and this is all me having a completely objective perspective, by the way. But later that night, we were going to bed, and my brother, I had my pillow, he had his pillow, and him being the younger brother, he decided that his pillow was terrible and that my pillow was better, and he wanted my pillow. So he said, give me your pillow. And I'm thinking of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what do I do? I say, well, I want to be a good Christian, so okay, here you go. I, I gave him my pillow, and I laid my head flat on the mattress, and I tried to sleep without a pillow that night, thinking this is what Jesus wants me to do. And mom comes and sees us the next morning and says, Stephen, why does your little brother have your pillow? And I explained, well, he asked for it, and Jesus said that you should go the extra mile and, and give the coat off your back. And my mom just said to my little brother, give Stephen back his pillow. But that exemplifies just how badly me, even as a child, I was a Christian already, but I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to please God. I, I, I wanted to know that I was doing what was right and, and that I was doing good and, and that I was growing as a believer. I wanted to feel like I was a good Christian. And maybe you here in the room, maybe you have struggled with that same thing, where you know that you're a believer, but you wonder whether or not you are a mature believer, whether you're growing as a believer whether your life as a believer is actually pleasing to God and that you're actually on the right track. I bring up this kind of thing often at the beginning of my sermons on Sunday because I believe this is actually one of the major problems that most American Christians struggle with, which is that we know what it means to be a Christian, but how do we be a good Christian? And just like that analogy that I shared last week of the mountain and talking about how true Christianity is about gospel living, being in Christ, by faith every day, reminding ourselves that we are dead to sin and alive to God. The fear is that if we don't do that, or the struggle is that if we don't do that, we fall into one of two pitfalls. We fall either into apathy, forget it, I'll do what I want, I'm covered by grace. Or we fall into legalism. That story of me giving my pillow to my little brother, that's a great example of a little kid and legalism. But today, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is going to continue to talk about what it looks like to actually be not just a Christian, but a good Christian who is growing and thriving and living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. So please turn with me, Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. The nice thing is that when you preach verse by verse, there's no surprise of what's going to happen next week. Someone asked me, hey, what are you going to preach on today? And my answer was the same as I always give when people ask me that question, which is the next verse. Look at what I preached on last week. Read the next verse, or if we're feeling crazy, the next two verses. And now you know what our next sermon is going to be on. 
So in Colossians chapter 2, remember, I've, I've mentioned this multiple times, but in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is breaking the chapter uh, in half, talking about how to walk with the Lord. In the first half, he talks about the sufficiency of Christ by faith, realizing that we are in Christ and sharing in what is true of Christ's death and resurrection. But this second half of chapter 2, we are focusing on the insufficiencies of everything else, specifically legalism, the things that are man-made that we put our trust in to try to be good Christians that go beyond what Scripture actually teaches. So last week, we looked at an example of that. We looked at religious regulations. That was our big idea last week of how you cannot walk in the Lord simply by following religious regulations. The big idea for today is going to be almost identical to last week's, and next week's big idea, as we finish chapter 2, is going to be almost identical to this week's, because really, the big idea in all three of these sermons in the second half of chapter 2 are all the same, which is you do not walk in Christ by anything other than Christ. It's just that Paul, from week to week, is going to give different examples. Last week, the examples were religious regulations focused specifically on rules and dogma and specific things that Jewish people felt like you had to do in order to please God as a Christian. But today's big idea is going to be a different example. The big idea is still basically the same, but the example is different, where Paul is going to also tell the Colossians that you cannot walk in Christ by pursuing false spirituality. And we're going to talk about what false spirituality means. It's slightly different from religious regulations, and it's actually something that, unlike Jewish traditions and customs that might seem foreign to us, we're going to find that in 2023 here in the United States of America, false spirituality is a major, major problem in the so-called American church. So that's going to be what Paul breaks down for us this morning. So read along silently with me as I read out loud what he says in verses 18 and 19. You'll notice at the beginning of 18, he repeats what he said at the beginning of verse 16, which is, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Yes, we are feeling crazy again today, and we're going through two verses but it's because the idea is united. It's one basic idea that Paul is getting at here. And I'm going to let you know that verse 18 in Colossians, before we get to our first point, that verse 18 in Colossians is probably the most controversial verse in the entire letter. If you're reading a translation other than the ESV, you'll notice that among the major translations, the NIV, the NASB, the King James Version, that all of the translations translate verse 18 slightly different. And it's not because they're bad or wrong or they got lazy. It's because the wording of verse 18 is genuinely hard. And you're free to look it up later today and notice some of the difficulties that the translators were wrestling with. 
But I believe that ESV does actually have the best translation of this specific verse, which is going to lead us to our first point. And I'm going to explain why I think the ESV has the best translation. Because the first point for us this morning, as Paul is talking about how we can't grow in Christ through false spirituality, is that we should not attempt to grow in Christ through lifestyle choices. Lifestyle choices alone are not the means by which we are good and growing spiritual mature Christians. They may be part of it, but they're not the means by which it happens. And the reason why this is our first point is because of the first example that Paul gives in the first half of verse 18, where he says, let no one disqualify you or let no one condemn you, is I think what the King James Version says. Basically what verse 16 says, let no one judge you, insisting on, and the ESV says, asceticism. That word is very controversial. The different translations translate this word differently because we're not quite sure what Paul is actually referring to here. And in fact, if you look at the commentaries on Colossians, you'll notice that one of the most popular questions about Paul's letter to the Colossians is who are the bad guys? Who are these troublemakers that Paul has to work against as he's writing to these Colossians? The Bible doesn't tell us. And that's very important for me to say because we need to talk about what the Bible does say but we also, this is important, we also need to be able to acknowledge what the Bible doesn't say. If the Bible says something, we should say the Bible says it. But if the Bible doesn't tell us beyond that, we need to be honest and say, the Bible doesn't tell us anymore. That's going to be important because when Paul talks about asceticism, that word in the Greek is actually just the word humility. That's all that is. That's not the word asceticism that we actually see there in, in the original Greek. Paul is saying, don't let anyone disqualify you, those who insist on humility. Which is odd because isn't humility a good thing? Of course it is. Why would Paul talk about those who are humble in a bad light? Why would he call these people who insist on humility, why would he call them puffed up without reason in their sensuous mind? The reason for that, the best guess we have from that, and I want to clarify, the best guess we have, because the Bible doesn't perfectly define it, this is the best guess that we have, and it's why the ESV used the word asceticism, is because Paul is referring to a false humility. He's referring to those who embrace a lifestyle of forced lowliness, a vow of poverty, a Spartan lifestyle, similar to what we would see in the medieval monks and nuns of, of, the, of the medieval age, where they believed that in a time, by the way, where people had no access to God's word, they had no means of spiritually growing because they could only go to mass where they would hear the Bible recited in Latin. They lacked God's word. So how did they make up for it? By trying to escape an evil world, take a vow of poverty, live a lowly lifestyle, thinking that if they embraced this lowly lifestyle, that that would result in them being good Christians. They thought that their lifestyle was the means by which they 
could walk with the Lord and gain spiritual maturity. Again, we don't know specifically who those people would be, but I'm going to give you the best guess, at least, of who we think it could have been, who would have been present here in Colossae. And that's going to bring us to the next slide. That's a picture, actually, that I took when I had the chance with the Master Seminary to go on a trip to Israel last May of 2022. This is a city or an ancient remains of a village called Qumran. That's spelled with a Q, Q-U-M-R-A-N. Uh, I think we have an office calendar that has a picture of uh, that cliff that I'm going to show here in a few minutes, but keep it on this slide. There was a society of Jews, uh, a sect of Judaism, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, who properly recognized that there was a problem in Judaism. They saw the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They saw the greediness of the temple system, and they knew it was a problem. So they came out to this settlement out in the desert. The Dead Sea is right behind me where I took that picture. And they built, almost like the Amish, a separated community where they lived like monks before there was ever such a thing as monks. And they thought that by living this poor lifestyle that they could please God and actually bring about his return. We can take it to the next slide because just the fun fact behind all of this is actually it was these Essenes, is who these people were called, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. They're never mentioned in the New Testament, but they did exist. They factually, without a doubt, existed from our study of history. These Essenes who embraced a separated lifestyle, who insisted on a humble lifestyle, they're actually the ones that we got the Dead Sea Scrolls from. See that little hole up there in the cliff? That's, that's cave number one. That's where the scroll of Isaiah was found. They were the ones who they also cared about Bible translation. And when they would make tiny, small mistakes in their copies of Scripture, they would throw them away by storing them in clay jars in abandoned caves. And the jars that we found in the 1940s, they almost perfectly match our current copies of the Bible. And those were the throwaway copies of the Essenes just to give you a little bit of a historic kind of connection there. But the reason why I'm talking about the Essenes is that the Essenes, even though they were in this community here in Qumran, we know that in the first century that they also had influence in other places in the Roman Empire. The Bible doesn't mention the Essenes. The Bible doesn't tell us that Paul is referring to the Essenes. I'm giving you a good guess from those who have studied Colossians and those who have studied history. There's a difference between what the Bible says and our best guess. What the Bible says is infallible. Stephen is fallible with a capital F. Just ask my, uh, you know, teachers and professors. So when Paul talks about lifestyle, it was very possible that these Colossians may have been influenced by these Essenes, forcing them to embrace this lowly lifestyle. And Paul said that by no means should you ever be condemned or think that you can't be a good Christian if you're not abandoning everything that you know in the world, separating yourself, and living a forced life of poverty. And we're middle-class Americans. Most of us, we're not tempted to take a vow of poverty. That's something that by God's grace, he has freed us from that temptation. Most of us, we're very comfortable living a comfortable, enjoyable life, just as Jesus did, by the way. Jesus was called by the Pharisees a drunkard and a glutton. 
He loved to enjoy the good things of this world for God's glory, but he had no problem living a life that was enjoying what God had created. And most of us work the same exact way, and that's a good thing. So we may not be tempted with asceticism like the Colossians may have been, but trust me, Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, there are plenty of other trendy lifestyles that are promoted by Christians on their blogs, that are promoted by Christians on their social media, that you see your friends doing, that you see moms doing, that may not be sinful, they may not be wrong, and even more than that, they may be very obedient and very wise and good things that you're doing with your life. Those may be good things. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank, but you have to recognize that they are merely just things of your life that you are doing to try to worship God, they are not the means by which you grow in the Lord. Do not ever let anyone tell you that if you don't do this with your kids or if you don't do this with your family or if you don't ban watching these certain things or if you don't follow whatever is trendy, again, you fill in the blank of what American Christians are saying, this is what it means to be a good Christian, Don't let anyone tell you that any lifestyle is the means by which you grow in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only means by which you grow in Jesus Christ. Same with VBS. VBS is a great thing, but VBS is not an idol. It's not a program that we love so much that we're going to think that simply by having a VBS that we're a healthy, growing, God-honoring church. There are plenty of churches that are not honoring the Lord that have a VBS this summer. We do VBS because we see it as a means to the end. The means is the program, but the end is the gospel. Teaching students about how they can love Jesus by faithfully depending on his death and resurrection by faith to receive forgiveness of their sins. That's the secret sauce. That's the key to salvation, and it's also the key to sanctification as we repeatedly remind ourselves that we have been crucified with Christ and that we have been raised with Christ. Not of any trendy Christian lifestyle. As good as it may be, none of those things are sufficient for you to actually grow in the Lord. Do not let those things replace a true and active faithful walk with the Lord, which we'll talk about at the end of our message. Let's now transition to our second point. Our second point says this, that we should not attempt to grow in Christ not through asceticism, but also not through false spiritual experiences. And while something like asceticism may be foreign to us and it may not be something that we are tempted by, the allure of false spiritual experiences, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that it is one of the, if not the, major problems in the American church, that if you were to pull up Google Maps and look at other churches of similar size or larger to Graham Emanuel in this area, you'll find that almost all of them have fallen to the allure of this, which Paul is going to describe in the second half of 18, where he continues and says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, and the worship of of angels, going on in detail about visions. 
Paul describes these people as puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. That word sensuous means their fleshly mind. Their uncircumcised mind is how he describes these people that they devote their time and energy on angels and heavenly visions. Let's start with angels. Back then, even with the Essenes, one of the reasons why we think the Essene sect was maybe influential here is because the Bible only mentions two angels by name, Gabriel and Michael. It also mentions the angel of the Lord, which was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. But the Essenes added angels to what Scripture revealed to them. They came up with stories and information about heaven and angels that were not present in God's Word. And they added it for themselves, and it became a part of their religion. For us today, even in 2023, the allure of angels, we look at Hollywood, we look at um, popular culture, and we see that when heaven is depicted, God is never there, but cute little precious moment angels always are. We falsely believe that when someone dies that they become an angel. No, they don't. They become better than an angel. They become an adopted son and daughter of God when they die and go to heaven. We put so much focus on angels and also demons, who remember, demons are just fallen angels. And in doing so, we distract ourselves from the true king of heaven, which is God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. But in addition to angels, it's connected here. Paul is talking not just about those who believe in angels, but he connects it as those who believe in angels and also who go in detail about having visions. Again, another reason why we think this is, these were the Essenes is because the Essenes and others, even those in medieval history under the Roman Catholic Church, they falsely believed that if they were to embrace a lowly, fleshly life, if they were to embrace a hungering, fasting, impoverished physical life, that as a reward of that, God would give them a spiritual high, that God would bless them with visions and with spiritual experiences. This is very common in Roman Catholic history, by the way. We'll see examples of people going out in the desert and fasting, and then God gives them visions. These things were connected, and they were even connected in the first century in the church as Paul is writing to the Colossians. And that second part about going into detail with visions is incredibly prevalent in the church today. And again, I don't believe I'm exaggerating when I say that it might be the major problem in American Christianity, where instead of pursuing God through Jesus Christ, we try to pursue God through spiritual experiences and visions. And probably the best example of this, or better yet, the worst example of this, would be Bethel Church in Redding, California. Bethel Church, they're famous for their music industry, but they are actually, they claim to be a church pastored by two false teachers. They claim to be apostles. They are false prophets named Bill and Benny Johnson. They believe they have a school of, apostasy, of, of apostleship. They teach people to have visions. 
they believe that God will reward those who are in their church who are truly faithful by giving them spiritual experiences. And they encourage people in their so-called church to pursue these spiritual visions and experiences and that having them will be proof that they're not just Christians, but good Christians. I'm going to read for you an excerpt from Bill Johnson in his book, The Physics of Heaven. Notice the title of that book, that false emphasis on heaven and angels. Look at what he has to say in this quote from that book. He says, There are anointings, mantles, revelations, and mysteries that have lain unclaimed, literally where they were left, because the generation that walked in them never passed them on. I believe it's possible for us to recover realms of anointing, realms of insight, realms of God that have been untended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them and to pass them on for future generations. Bethel Church is a false church. They're not the body of Christ because they don't preach Christ. They preach a false gospel by which someone knows God through pursuing spiritual, as they call it, experiences. But Paul says the irony here is that in their attempt to pursue spiritual experiences, they actually reflect a life that is fleshly, that is being led by their uncircumcised mind. I'm going to give you another example. This one comes from the Passion Translation. Maybe you've heard of the Passion Translation. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, you probably will at some point through some friend or through some woman at some Bible study somewhere where the Passion Translation, it's not a translation at all, it's a paraphrase by one man, one man who doesn't know Greek or Hebrew, who claimed that he had a vision from God to rewrite the Old and New Testament. This is what he had to say as to why he came out with the Passion Translation. He said, it felt like heaven's wind. The rock, the breath, the wind of God came upon me. And he spoke to me and said, I am commissioning you to translate the Bible into the translation project that I am giving you to do. And he promised, this is Brian Simmons speaking, he says, and he promised that he would help me, and he promised me that he would give me secrets of the Hebrew language. There's no secrets of the Hebrew language. There's keys to the Hebrew language, and it's very hard, and it's very difficult. Again, just ask my professors. There are many better Hebrew students than me, but there's no hidden secrets of the language that have to be revealed. This is a man who doesn't want you to follow God. He wants you to follow himself and his own interpretation of who God is based on his feelings. The Passion Translation is not a translation at all, and it's not the Bible at all. In fact, the Passion Translation is 50% longer than your major translations of the Bible. And it's because he's added content to it. Not only that, but he also claims that God promised him that there is a chapter of the Bible that has not yet been revealed that God is going to reveal to him if he does a good job with the Passion Translation. And it's John chapter 22. John 22, this man claims God will reveal to him to add to the Passion Translation if he is faithful in this translation. Stay away from the Passion Translation of the Bible. 
Stay away from men like Brian Simmons, who the Old Testament and the New Testament warned us about. I have a few verses here that exemplify this. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 7. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Bethel Church has done that, and Brian Simmons has done that. Many, many churches and so-called pastors who have been influenced by these institutions are also doing the same thing as we speak, miles away from us. And Christians are going through their doors, and they're buying it. They're being told that the way that you grow in Christ is not through reading God's Word, is not by looking at verse by verse what God has revealed, but instead trying to pursue Him on your own terms emotionally so that God can reward you with some kind of spiritual experience, something that the Bible has never promised and puts the focus on the person other than the Son of God. This is what all false prophets do. They give a false word to promote themselves other than Christ. Jeremiah says the same thing. God says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, we see examples of this. False Christs and false prophets, they've been predicted from the beginning and they still exist in 2023. They exist in this neighborhood, this community, this region, this state, this country. And they tell Christians that the way that you grow in the Lord is not by seeking Christ and his word by faith, but by seeking experiences from God by whatever. Fill in the blank. And by the way, if you don't have a vision, if you don't have a spiritual experience, well, guess what? That must mean that you're not Christian enough, so you better fake it or get on the train because you're out, which is why this is a witch hunt that continues over and over again. And it all comes from the same thing. It all comes from the same source, which is a movement that took place in this country in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, where a man named Parnham started a school called Bethel Bible Seminary. Does that ring a bell? There's a reason why Bethel Church is called Bethel Church, and it's Bethel Seminary in Topeka, Kansas. And this was a seminary of how to be an apostle, how to give prophecies, how to have visions. And it was at this school in 1901 that a woman named Agnes Osman claimed for the first time in church history since the New Testament to be given the gift of speaking in tongues. She claimed that she was given the miracle of being able to speak in Chinese. There was no Google back then. There was no Wikipedia. So everyone just assumed that her babbling was actually Chinese. There's just one problem, though. She also claimed that the Holy Spirit could allow her to write in Chinese. This is it. That's the actual document that started the charismatic movement in this country. And that's not Chinese. It's funny, but it's also tragically sad. I I find it funny with you. I really do. But it's also tragically sad because, like I said, there's churches all around us that have been influenced by institutions that are products of a movement that started with that, that started with this, that started with a lie when they had the truth already given to them sufficiently. I know I'm over time. I'm going to wrap up for you here quickly because in verse 19, we have to talk about what is true. 
that we don't grow by following a lifestyle, we don't grow by pursuing spiritual experiences, we can only grow in Christ based on what verse 19 tells us, which is by being a member of the body that is abiding, that is holding on to Christ as the head. That's what Paul says. He says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You don't grow by following a certain lifestyle. You don't grow by pursuing a certain experience. You grow by the same way you are saved, by depending completely by faith in Jesus Christ and what God says about Jesus Christ in his word, in his word alone. There's so many other examples that I could go through, but this is really a fill-in-the-blank message where you need to fill in for yourselves the examples in your life where you have seen this where you need to do spiritual inventory in your life and recognize the examples of things that maybe you have put false in. Like I said, I've given you so many examples. As I close, I'll give you one more, which was from a young boy, now a man, named Alex Malarkey. Alex was, you may not remember, but he had apparently died and gone to heaven. His book, The Boy That Went to Heaven and Came Back, was one of the most popular books of its time about 10 years ago, that along with the book, Heaven is for Real. Again, emphasis on angels and visions and things that are not true of Scripture. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to close with this. But later on, Alex became truly saved and he admitted to the world that what he had said in that book was a lie. And to end, I'm going to read you the quote, the statement that Alex made about that book that had been falsely published. Alex writes, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own, so that you may be forgiven that you can learn of heaven outside of what was written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and to hold the Bible as enough. Let's pray, church family. Heavenly Father, your word is enough. Your son, Jesus Christ, is enough as the means of salvation and sanctification. Lord, give us wisdom by your spirit, informed by your word, to truthfully discern what is from you, what is from Scripture, and what is just simply from the fleshly mind of man. Make us a church, Lord, where we stand strong for your Son, Jesus Christ, where we stand strong for the Word in a community, in a world where the opposite is happening. May you give us perseverance to proclaim your Word and to proclaim your Son, Jesus Christ, to a world that desperately needs it and nothing less. Help us do this this week during VBS Help us do it every week before your son Jesus Christ returns. And we pray this in the name of that son Jesus Christ. Amen.
All right, thank you, church family. Have a great week. Pray for VBS. Go in peace.